Hello and welcome to the F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Amanato, and this is Round 13, the Belgian Grand Prix. Ferrari took a step forward in the power stakes at Spa-Francorchamps, but for the third race weekend in a row, rain intervened in Lewis Hamilton's favour, and the Briton seized pole position. But Sebastian Vettel made short work of Hamilton on the first lap, and not safety car nor strategy could prize the lead from his grasp. To help ask whether Ferrari and Vettel are now outright title favourites, I'm joined by F1 statsman Sean Kelly. Sean, how are you doing? Another day in paradise, what can I say? <laughs> well, it wasn't exactly the the thrilling race perhaps we expected. Belgium threatens rain and, I mean, we got some, but maybe not at the time that really turned this into a thriller. Yeah, I, I would say that the, the rain thwarted what would otherwise have been a pretty perfect weekend for Ferrari. Uh, the fact that they led everything except Q3 when the rain hit uh, really suggested that um, Mercedes, I mean, Mercedes seemed to be properly on the back foot. I mean, if you think about how things unfolded in Germany, where Vettel was on the course for victory until it rained, um, then we had uh, Hungary when we had, uh, you know, we had the, the rain in qualifying and, you know, that, that, sh- that swung the grid order and, and so on. And then rain in Belgium put, put Hamilton on pole, but it didn't last long because Vettel was able to take advantage of the run up to Le Com, um, seize the lead. And then after that, realistically never looked threatened. I mean, that was the culmination of what was, uh, I suppose, a milestone in terms of the fight between Ferrari and Mercedes, because for this race, which is the first of two back-to-back power circuits, really, the next one being Monza, uh, we had the third and final engine upgrades for both teams. They were brought here um, for all of the customers as well. And Mercedes felt pretty confident about their one. I know after the race, so in retrospect, of course, you can say whatever you like, but uh, they felt like this was quite a big step, quite a significant step but disappointment for them that not only was Ferrari who already seemed to have a bit of a power advantage before the break bringing their own uh, upgrade but it seemed to be an even bigger step on top of that yeah and uh, it was uh, you know it was it was it was concealed by the events of Q3 when obviously the rains came and, and, and skewed the field slightly if you actually look at the 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 theoretical uh, best times like if you added up the three best sectors that everybody set in qualifying which of course you know counts the the dry elements of Q2 and everything. What we would have ended up was with an all Ferrari front row. We would have had Vettel on pole. And we would have had Raikkonen second. So yeah, there's definitely big problems there. Ferrari quickest in sector one. Ferrari quickest in sector three. The twisty stuff in sector two went uh, Hamilton's way. Um, Ferrari quickest in the speed trap as well. So yeah, it's I think Mercedes have operated from a a, a position of luxury since the turbo hybrid era began because they've been comfortable in the notion that they had the best engine. Now, finally, you know, four years in, Ferrari have not only caught up, but seem to have surpassed that. And and it is, it's definitely making a big difference. We talk about qualifying. You mentioned there that Ferrari should have had a pace advantage. They did emerge with something, even if they didn't get pole position. And that was the fact that thanks to the power unit upgrades for both teams, Valtteri Bottas, who had already reached his maximum allocation for a number of power unit parts, was to start from the back. And though Kimi Räikkönen only qualified sixth, it still gave what should have been 
uh, a tactical advantage for Ferrari, being able to use two cars to pincer Lewis Hamilton. So as much as Hamilton had that pole position, and even if he'd been able to maintain position off the line on the first lap, you'd have thought that this could have been a, a really quite a difficult race for Mercedes to navigate tactically, considering they would have had to cover off two different drivers. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and consider the cars that were between Raikkonen and Vettel on the grid, because normally it's a Mercedes, it's a couple of Red Bulls, people who they who a Ferrari driver is going to find difficult to pass. In Raikkonen's case, he was behind Grosjean, Perez and Ocon, which, with all due respect, are not in the league as the 2018 Ferrari. So you knew that all things being equal, Raikkonen would make fairly short work of passing them and getting on with the pursuit of Vettel or Hamilton, or at the very least, if he couldn't keep pace with them, he would be in a spoiler capacity. So where by the time you're starting to think about, okay, when are we boxing for an undercut or what, what have you, you've got to think about, well, where's Raikkonen in this? You know, is he, is he going to be in a position where he's holding us up? Uh, you know, do we want to get, we need to get out ahead of him? You know, all those sorts of things. And of course, those are all, those are all questions that ultimately went unanswered because of everything that happened at La Source on the first lap. Absolutely right. We'll get to that in just a moment. I thought it was interesting and worth noting as well, though, in qualifying, the, the downpour came between Q2 and Q3, and that really obviously excited everybody, for lack of a better word, not only for the, the form purposes of qualifying three, but also in the sense of um, deciding what strategy to take into the top 10 shootout. Ferrari seemed to be in such a rush. Not only did they underfuel Kimi Raikkonen uh, when he came in for the intermediate tyres, but also Sebastian Vettel struggled with managing his power and deployment on that final lap, which he put down to losing pole, and of course Kimi Raikkonen six he put down to not having that final run. It's the unpredictability of, of Spa-Francorchamps as well, isn't it? Where you can't even plan necessarily for rain because it still catches people out. Yeah, and Mercedes, I think, didn't expect there to be rain as well. If, if you look at back at their Twitter feed, You'll see uh, they tweeted a photograph of a set of wet tires just before qualifying and said, I don't think we'll be needing these today, to which I, res- to which I responded, have you ever been to Spa before? Um, you know, it might look sunny right now. That usually means wait half an hour and it'll be raining. Um, or worse still, it'll be raining at one half of the track, mm-hmm. but not all of it. And of course, that's exactly what it did. And, um, you know, even Sunday was like that. Even, you know, we didn't get rain in the race, but as the, ra- as the race finished... It was starting to spoil for rain, so yeah, it's tip. It was tip maximum spa, you might say. <laughs> and I think, and I think, I think it, you are right that it rattled Ferrari. There was a uh, particular radio exchange that Vettel had with his crew when he came back into the pits at the end of his first run, I think it was in Q3, um, when he was yelling expletives at the team, worrying about uh, damaging the floor by dragging the car into the, the garage. Um, incorrectly Mm. Um, and it all got a bit heated and uh, I'm sure none of that stuff would have happened if it had been dry which just would have been business as usual Ferrari had sailed through the weekend up to that point can you believe that by they'd led all three practice sessions so that can you believe that that is only the second time that's happened at a Grand Prix weekend in 11 years that's an incredible statistic considering the performance they've had so far this year yeah an astounding number Sochi 2017 was the only time that that only other time that that has happened since uh, I believe 2007 so yeah Ferrari were in the box seat and and cruising and then suddenly the rain came along and, and, and helped Lewis 
in the same way that it did in Hungary and the same way that it did in the German Grand Prix. You couldn't imagine how Vettel must have been feeling. I mean, you could see it in his face. There was just disappointment in that face as he pulled up on the grid after qualifying because he knew that one had slipped out of his hands and he now had something of an unknown quantity for the Grand Prix to deal with, with Lewis Hamilton ahead. And I guess no one 100% sure... Uh, the ultimate power stakes, given uh, both teams, of course, like to hide a little bit until they get to a dry Q3, theoretically. And just before we consider what happened in that race, it is worth mentioning Force India, as you said, uh, an extremely difficult off-season or mid-season for them uh, going into administration. Now, probably coming out of administration, there's still a whole bunch of uh, legal issues to be cleared up with them. They've always done quite well here, whatever you want to call this team on any particular day, I suppose. That team's always done quite well here. Uh, so an important performance for them, but also, I guess, illustrating uh, when Sergio Perez and Esteban Ocon do have that opportunity, they're the two drivers who really do seize upon it. Yeah, it was a sensational debut by the Force <laughs> India team, replacing the Force India team that were there before. Um, and you are right, they do have a history of, of, of good results here. Um, Sergio Perez um, seems to have a glass ceiling when it comes to qualifying higher than fourth. And the funny thing about it is that Perez has started fourth now five times in his career. Three of them have been at Spa, but he's never started higher than fourth in his career. Um, and uh, it's probably a bit galling when Esteban Ocon, who has started higher than fourth before, did it again mm-hmm. um, on this weekend. But yes, it was a great, obviously a great boost for them. Um, and uh, again, it, they, they, they are pretty slippery when it comes down to straight line speed. Even if the Mercedes is no longer the dominant engine or power unit, as we call it now in Formula One, uh, they were second and third in the speed traps. They've they've been they've been consistently among the fastest guys in the trap all year, as they have been throughout the turbo hybrid era. They've continued to 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 do that, and they took full advantage of the the conditions um, in Q3. They really didn't have much business being as high as they were, particularly given that in Hungary they were eliminated in Q1, mm-hmm. and there they were third and fourth on the grid. So yeah, it was it it, it was an opportunity well taken but certainly historically having finished uh fourth and fifth in this race as recently as i believe 2016 it wasn't that much of a surprise to see force india do better than expected at spa Mm -hmm. and fortunately for them as well managed to keep out of first lap chaos which emerged uh, just behind them really i suppose there was this great tension accidental completely accidental tension on that first lap because we had vettel dueling hamilton for the lead and the force india cars it turned out by the end of the kevel straight uh but behind them there was this really quite devastating accident between nico hulkenberg and fernando alonso and then charles leclerc and then daniel ricardo and kimi raikkonen uh, and the timing of the safety car ultimately ended up being the tension but if we consider this crash for a moment first I thought it was interesting because it was Valtteri Bottas who had a small crash of his own at the same time. I think he tried to suggest that maybe he'd been distracted as he saw the chaos unfold in front of him. Uh, But both he and Nico Hülkenberg referenced the loss of downforce cars have when they're in a huge pack like that going into turn one as the reason that both of them rear-ended cars. Obviously, Nico Hülkenberg to a far more devastating effect. Is it really just a matter of it being that dramatic, in your opinion? I mean, they have race starts literally every race. Yeah. Well, before we came on air here, I reviewed the start, because obviously I knew we would be talking about it. At the time, the time it happened, I thought Nico Hülkenberg's car had had a rear brake failure, mm-hmm. because... It, it seemed if, if, you know, obviously people will be listening to this in Melbourne. Those of you who went to Melbourne for the 2014 race will remember 
Kamui Kobayashi kamikazeing the first corner in his cage room and running straight into the back of Felipe Massa, um, which at the time everybody thought was driver error. But as it turned out, it was a rear brake failure. And Hulkenberg's accident, the way Hulkenberg went barreling into the back of Alonso, relatively unchecked speed, reminded me of that. And I thought that for a professional racing driver to misjudge his braking mm-hmm. by that much, I find it hard to believe. This isn't some big time Charlie who's here or like, you know, who's having his Grand Prix debut. This is a man who's done nearly 10 years of Formula One. And if you look at, if you, if you go and have a look at the replay of that, when Hulkenberg hits the brakes, everybody else brakes at the same time. Now, if he'd missed his braking point, what you would have seen is his car shoot way ahead of everybody else as everybody else hits the brakes before him. That doesn't actually happen. What actually happens is he hits the brakes. You hear the revs start to start to check up and everybody else slows down at the same rate. And then suddenly he's going for, you know, he's, he's heading towards Alonso much quicker than everybody else is, which still makes me think that I don't, you know, it, it really, the evidence, I know they said that the, they haven't said there was any mechanical failure. But I, I find it difficult to not believe my own eyes. Like you're telling me a professional racing driver with that much experience gets it so wrong, hits the brakes at the right time, but yet goes barreling into the back of Alonso. I think he was still in fourth gear when he hit him. So that's a massive misjudgment. And I, I, I still wait to see Renault's sort of um, post-mortem of events there. Um, but of course, it triggered the, the Alonso accident um, which got all the headlines because he went up and over uh, Charles Leclerc's car and left tire marks all over the halo. Now, of course, it's a matter of debate whether the halo was a life-saving uh, addition in this instance. But the best thing you can say is better that it be there and not find out whether it was a life-saving addition or not. Um, so, yeah, that was. I always said that the first time... The, the people who said the halo was a bad thing... The first time that someone gets a direct hit from a wheel assembly and doesn't even retire from the race is the moment where people where the where the debate ends because then people will say this guy should literally be dead and instead he's on the podium. So, you know, it was always going to be that, and and certainly in this case, I'm glad that it was on the car. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's there was an irony in in Fernando Alonso being the driver that vaulted over Charles Leclerc because only six years ago it was him in Leclerc's position being vaulted over by Romain Grosjean. And I mean, that accident was a real close call when you consider how how close that Lotus car uh, got to the cockpit where Fernando Alonso was sitting. How close it got to his hands on the steering wheel. So, I mean, that was obviously a close call, and no one was injured in that situation but it's not the kind of close call where you could just uh, walk away from it and go that's just that's just racing that's fine we have no problem with a car getting that close to the cockpit I, i've had a twitter back and forth um about this subject uh, in the last 24 hours and it seems that the the halo still offends some people's sense of taste and what i said in response was the halo doesn't offend my sense of taste what offends my sense of taste is having massive overly sensitive aero that stops the guys from racing mm-hmm. that's far more offensive to my sense of taste as as someone who likes watching racing than whether or not a driver has adequate head protection you know it, and and in this instance you know it's it, it may have saved a driver so there will be and there will be much more severe incidents like this where it will save a driver so it doesn't it really I, I don't I can't speak for everybody else but from my perspective I don't I I hardly even think about the halo anymore it did you know it didn't it it wasn't a conversation that I was going to have until suddenly a car hit the halo and now suddenly it's oh wow 
that's the reason you know that's why we've put it on there while that crash was happening of course at turn one Sebastian Vettel was busy taking the lead off Lewis Hamilton uh up well it didn't even he didn't even need to get all the way to the coup. he did it sort of out up the top of Eau Rouge really he he didn't need hardly any slipstream to get the work done he was well past Lewis Hamilton by the braking zone it was the Force Indias that took full advantage of the slipstreaming and Esteban Ocon considered having a look in for the lead into the braking zone though thought better of it given his future's a little bit on the line perhaps <laughs> and also the last thing you want to do is take out the championship contenders I suppose so some clever thinking there but I guess if there was any moment yes obviously the slipstream was quite powerful because of the headwind down that straight but if there was any moment that you really felt like the Ferrari power unit and package was really well put together and well equipped for this race it was how quickly Sebastian Vettel was able to relieve Lewis Hamilton of that lead right and if you're gonna if you're gonna not lead into turn one this is one of the best tracks to be second into turn one because after you come out of La Source mm-hmm. you know you've got a good 20-25 seconds of full throttle so you've got plenty of time to um, get in a slipstream to line up a pass um, I don't think we quite expected the, the Force Indias to have quite as good of a go as they did um, but yeah I mean Ocon was right to, to, to back out of it it would have been it would have been a fantastic uh, spectacle if he'd absolutely banzai it on the brakes and gone into the lead but it would have been equally as bad if he'd spent what may be his last weekend in the Force India Drive taking out everyone in sight Grosjean style and it would have been you know like well okay that wasn't a great way to go out but one thing I would say is that yes obviously the Vettel pass of Hamilton was critical to the outcome of the race arguably just as critical was the collision between Ricardo and Raikkonen at the first corner, which we didn't, which we didn't discuss, um, because what that did from a strategy point of view is completely clear up any um, ambiguities about strategy, because there was no, because you took out Raikkonen and Ricardo, there was no sense of well, where are they going to drop in? Like, if we pit now, are we going to be behind these guys? Are we going to be ahead of them? When are they pitting? What tires will they take? they were suddenly removed from the equation. And that gave us a much more conventional, very, very linear um, strategy for the race, for both Ferrari and for Mercedes. And more importantly, it did make it exactly, uh, as you sort of allude to there, a straight fight between Vettel and Hamilton. Not so much about uh, the question of how the rest of the field would interact with them, but there was no opportunity for Ferrari to try to pincer Lewis Hamilton into taking a, a suboptimal strategy or covering off one driver at the expense of another. So there really was nowhere for, for Mercedes to hide at the end of this. And I think it was Toto Wolff's words after the race that said this showed up all of our deficits to Ferrari. There was no way for them to avoid that or, or blame anything else. Right, right. And and we knew from, from Friday that um, the, the, the one unknown was Hamilton and Vettel's pace on a long run on softs because Hamilton and Vettel had both done their long runs on medium tyres on Friday and obviously both had decided that the medium was not for them because they didn't run it in the race Um, we'd seen Raikkonen and Botas run those tyres the soft tyres on Friday Botas was a a little quicker than Raikkonen but of course that doesn't necessarily translate to the other drivers in the cars I also knew from from looking at the performance of the super soft tyre on Friday that it was always likely that that tyre was going to run longer in the race than people thought it would. There was a problem with blistering, particularly on the left rear tyre, um, particularly right through the, the centre of the of the tyre, uh, not on the shoulder, but right through the middle. But it didn't seem to affect the lap time on Julie. And on that basis, I thought there could be a situation here where we're going to see someone try and push long on the super soft. Um, 
because the tire doesn't fall away as much as you would expect it to do. Um, one of the other things that was uh, something I was looking at but actually didn't transpire was the possibility that the delta from switching to a soft tire for you know the, the undercut, if you will, would be not as severe as it might have been at other tracks. Based on Friday's running, it seemed like that undercut was not as 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 helpful as it has been at other circuits. That turned out to be not to be the case. The, the undercut was there, um, and Ferrari obviously had to react very quickly once Hamilton headed for pit lane. Yeah, and that was one of two circumstances in which Hamilton could feasibly have perhaps taken the lead back from Sebastian Vettel. The first was, of course, the safety car restart, and there were thoughts of shades of the 2017 safety car restart where Lewis Hamilton had to quite brilliantly really defend Sebastian Vettel's advances by sort of easing off the throttle out of La Source to avoid being caught up by a slipstream. This year, though, Vettel didn't really have to think about that too much because it was, I suppose, Lewis Hamilton's eagerness to try and get that job done after the safety car line, which is at the bus stop chicane, essentially. But that put him too far back when he couldn't get the job done to really do what Vettel did to him on the first lap and slipstream him back up through the Kemmel Strait. And that was the the first, I suppose, stint one for Vettel. Right. I, I would say, I don't know if anyone asked Hamilton about that. I confess I don't I haven't read any. I haven't read any remarks from him about it, but I do wonder if, even in the heat of the moment, he thought that was I shouldn't have done that. I should have hung back. Should have maybe given us a little more patience, um, because after you know, once once Vettel was established in the lead uh, on the way down, you know, towards as far as Stavlo on the on the first lap under Green, kind of looked pretty comfortable after that for the next hour and a half. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't a situation where I thought Hamilton was ever likely to get him, mm-hmm. and and knowing knowing that the car was so good in the dry running that the, the you know based on Friday's running, based on Saturday morning's running, it was always going to be a case of well, it's an uphill battle now. You're going to have to wait for a mistake, or you're going to have to wait for you know is is Verstappen going to come into this in some shape or form because uh, you've got no Ricardo, you've got no Raikkonen, and realistically you've got no Botas. Um, yeah, and of course he didn't get that help the only other the second opportunity Hamilton had or the only other card he really had to play that Mercedes had to play was of course that sole pit stop window Uh, and it looked like he was building up to perhaps a slightly more effective than it ended up being undercut uh, as he approached uh, a halfway distance his stop came on lap 21 when it seemed like his tyres had finally started to give up he'd set a couple of quick laps and then a a slightly slower one as he came in Uh, he had a a deficit of around three and a half seconds uh, and ultimately emerged uh, with a deficit of only about one and a half seconds and like you say I mean Ferrari only had to bring Sebastian Vettel in on the next slap to cover that off but realistically as much as much as I mean it ended up in the way everyone could have guessed with Ferrari maintaining the lead it was perhaps slightly closer fought than we could have expected if not simply because it did rely of course on Sebastian Vettel having a great in lap a great pit stop when a mistake at any part of the way really could have cost him quite significantly right I mean at this stage of the game you're just dealing with track position aren't you so it it could be said that we didn't really see Vettel in a, in a position where he had to pass Lewis in race conditions. Yes, I know he passed him on the first lap, but the first lap all bets are off because it's extenuating circumstances. What would have happened had he emerged behind Hamilton? Would he have had that? Would he have been able to make advantage of the fact that they were quickest in sector one and sector three? Would, they, would he have had, would the DRS have been strong enough that he could have lined up and then even 
You know, even if he was 1.000 seconds behind, he could have still got past him. And even then, if he, if he could have passed him with the DRS, would Hamilton have been able to hold that off? Would he have done what he did last year with the restart? We'll never know that, unfortunately. But you are right in that so so much as Vettel, Vettel's inlap was a half second quicker than, than Hamilton's. Um, yes, Hamilton got stuck behind Verstappen, but in the end, it didn't really matter that much because Ferrari covered the stop on the next lap. Now, if Ferrari had left Vettel out, then we might have had a race. Um, and, you know, teams are not not beyond making such bad calls. So they did at least they did at least stay with plan A. And I suspect it was made easier for them because they could obviously see there were no other cars in the way. It was just like, okay, the only person we've got to worry about this afternoon is Lewis. Whatever Lewis does, cover that, and we've got this in the bag. Um, and they did exactly that. And of course, there was no other. There was no other problems with virtual safety cars or safety cars, which could have which could have messed it up. It was absolutely a, a straight fight between the two contenders for victory here. Just to look at those pit stop numbers, though, to illustrate how close I suppose it could have been. And this was the Mercedes gamble at the end of the day. It wasn't so much that the undercut by itself would work, but you hope, of course, that the other team just does a worse job uh, than you do. Had the pit stops been executed to the same time, had they been equal time, the gap, rather than being a little over one second, could have been as little as about 0.8 of a second, at which point Vettel might have been coming out alongside Max Verstappen before Hamilton had a chance to pass him. And then you do wonder, had Hamilton been able to pass Verstappen faster, or had he not got stuck behind Verstappen? Then that brings it well into that sort of grey area. And then, of course, you consider if Ferrari had made a mistake in the pit stop, then it was all up for grabs. So as much as this was, in standard circumstances, of course, with both teams being equal, a straightforward cover of an undercut... That is the risk of an undercut, right? That you try and pressure a team into a mistake because they weren't exactly ready to stop. And we'd seen Ferrari get a little bit flustered in Q3. So if there was any possibility for a fumble, yeah, it was certainly going to be in those circumstances where you know that there's a minimum error. Yes, we can say, okay, Vettel pits, he comes out, he wins the race. But of course, that's assuming that everybody does what they're supposed to do. And when you've got that many people on a pit stop, that's not always the case. But, uh, you know, all credit to them. They did not make the mistakes that they had made on Saturday. 25 points. And so that was Sebastian Vettel winning the Belgian Grand Prix. But if you wanted to compare a, a more interesting undercut situation, you have to go all the way to the bottom of the top 10. There wasn't a lot of fighting between the top 10 because it was mostly teammates following one another. But in ninth and 10th were Pierre Gasly and Marcus Ericsson. And what was really interesting here was that these are two cars, obviously, with two different strengths and weaknesses, given that Gasly has a Honda-powered Toro Rosso and Marcus Ericsson has the Ferrari powered Sauber and Ericsson had the contra strategy starting on the harder tyre whereas Gasly qualifying in the top 10 started on the softer tyre and they essentially had to swap compounds. What was really interesting was that Toro Rosso found a gap in the field in time for the first pit stop, which allowed Pierre Gasly to make his stop preempt the undercut, so stop before Marcus Ericsson, and stop behind his teammate, Brendan Hartley, who then, of course, waved him through. But when Marcus Ericsson had no choice but to follow him in on the end of the next lap, he also got stuck behind Brendan Hartley, who, of course, then didn't wave Ericsson through, and they created this gap which of course wasted Ericsson's new softer tyres uh, and allowed Gasly to secure that those two points in ninth place. Is that right? I'm not sure because I'm often because <laughs> in my in my role in my role I'm always watching the leaders. So it fascinates me to learn this for the first time. Um, it's, it, what's funny is in my job with the broadcasters, um, I'm often 
looking at what's happening obviously at the sharp end of the grid uh, at the field and uh, it's only later in the race I start to look down and start to see oh look you know Marcus Ericsson's in the points you know it's I'm almost like uh, it's it's similar to being on the pit wall if I if, if I was on the pit wall at Mercedes and then late in the day you think okay well this is in the bag what's el- what else is happening in this race uh, so that happens in, in this instance so you're you're educating me as, as, as much as anything here as much as as much as people are listening to this but but I would say this, though. I would say this uh, from a statistical point of view, if I may wander away from strategy for just a second. Please. Um, Marcus Ericsson had a personal triumph this weekend. It was the first time in his Formula 1 career that he's now scored twice at the same track oh. um, because he, he scored uh, at Spa back in 2015, uh, pointless in 2016 and 2017, like through the season, no points. Uh, finally got back in the points uh, in Bahrain this season. Uh, and uh, Belgium was uh, what is fourth, fourth points of the year, I think. Um, so uh, yeah, a big, uh, a bit of a, bit of a moment of uh, personal triumph for Ericsson and for Gasly as too. Of course, it was the first time Gasly scored in consecutive Grand Prix uh, in his Formula One career. Um, I don't think Honda are missing McLaren too much. No, probably not. I imagine probably not. McLaren, on the other hand, well, well, they're probably not missing Honda either, although maybe they're missing the money that Honda was paying them. At least then they had something in exchange for their poor performance as, as opposed to now when they have nothing. And this was another poor weekend, of course, for McLaren with Stoffel Van Dorn at his home race qualifying last and McLaren finishing last with Stoffel Van Dorn in his home race. Uh, I thought it was interesting, though, if we compare these two engines because we have McLaren obviously powered by Renault now and then Toro Rosso powered by Honda and neither was doing particularly well. I mean, we saw Stoffel Van Dorn struggling to pass or make any impact, really, on Brendan Hartley, who was powered by Honda. And then if we compare Carlos Sainz in the Renault Works team, he was spending a lot of his race stuck behind the Williams drivers, first uh, Sergei Sorokin and then Lance Stroll. And given this is a power-sensitive circuit, it really shows up the weaknesses in those engines, and it really does make you wonder the longer-term prospects for the two. Right, right. Although, I would like to say... Um, Sergei Sorokin had a much better weekend mm-hmm. uh, this weekend. He ran. He he was the only driver. Not only is he the only driver who hasn't scored a point this season, he was also the only driver who'd never run in the points. He hadn't run in the top mm-hmm. ten for a single lap in his entire career, which he finally he finally did conquer that. He he got a good uh, ten or twelve laps in the points in Belgium. Didn't score, but uh, he did beat Lance Stroll again. Mm-hmm. Um, and given that um, Lance Stroll is apparently Force India banged in the near future. Um, you know, Sorokin can at least give him that as a parting gift and, and say, well, you know, if he if he's good enough, then why am, why am I not good enough? Ah, it's because his dad doesn't own a team. That's why he's not good enough. Yes, yes. This is probably the, the probably one of the last instances where we'll say the Russian guy has less money. <laughs> Formula One delivers again. Yeah. <laughs> really. Uh, one driver, I suppose, we didn't mention, but this is because he did that standard thing he was expected to do was Valtteri Bottas, who showed yet again having a front-running car start at the back of the grid is no impediment to finishing in the points, well in the points. In fact, he was even targeting a podium, which, who knows, maybe he would have been close to achieving had he not been caught up in that first lap mess. Yeah, yeah, he um, he had the fastest lap of the race, um, and he never... It actually... <laughs> We say we think it's easy to come from the back of the grid in, in one of these front-running cars. Valtteri Bottas actually had never... He'd only ever had one top four finish in his career from outside the top ten on the grid. He's not known mm-hmm. for amazing comeback drives. But on this instance, he, he did what was expected of him. Um, again, a- assisted by the fact that there wasn't... There was a Ferrari missing and there was a Red Bull missing. 
um, because otherwise sixth might have been the best he could do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he, he still finished. He still finished thirty eight seconds behind Verstappen. So yeah, he, he was really he it, it, it was all he could do. To, to finish fourth if of course if he'd gotten a safety car we would have had a much different race if he'd gotten a, a safety car later in the race that is mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know who knows maybe Red Bull would have said the same we've seen you know when there's when there's, a, when there's a safety car later in the race Red Bull tend to react more aggressively than the other guys in front of them we might have had a much different finale because everybody had new sets of uh, super softs available so um, you know that option did, did present itself but sadly uh, nobody threw it into the hedge <laughs> so we never <laughs> We never had that. A special point, by the way, of Max Verstappen. Uh, we mentioned that Van Dorn, the Belgian driver in the Belgian Grand Prix, was the last classified finisher. Mm-hmm. Well, Max Verstappen, of course, was also born in mm-hmm. Belgium. Um, so, you know, we, uh, for statistical purposes, <laughs> I repurposed him, repurposed him as a Belgian for this race weekend. And if you do that, you can say uh, statistically that he was the first Belgian-born driver to finish on the podium in the Belgian Grand Prix for 50 years. Oh, wow. That's... Five zero, yes. Jackie X finished third at Spa in 1968, the same race where McLaren took their first Grand Prix World Championship victory. Of course, mm-hmm. um, Jackie X was third for Ferrari. There have been no other Belgian-born drivers officially on the podium until Verstappen on Sunday. There is slight caveat to that. Thierry Boutsen was third in 1988 and then was disqualified, mm-hmm. but. I'm not going to let that get in the way of a good stat. Especially if we have to reclassify Max Verstappen, though, as being Belgian. Yes, you have to bear in mind it was a slow news day, <laughs> so I had to dig pretty deep to get that one. Well, it's nonetheless an interesting one. I think Max Verstappen will take it. Considering how many Dutch people there were in the crowd, it may as well have been his home race, as pretty much any European races these days. Uh, I feel like the way it's going with that travelling fan base of his... That was the Belgian Grand Prix. Uh, It delivered an interesting chapter in the championship narrative, even if it was a fairly straightforward way for Sebastian Vettel to get there. And Sean, it's been a pleasure to look back on the race with you. Thanks very much. That was F1 Statsman, Sean Kelly. The Strategy Report is a beer mobile podcast powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. You can get every episode by subscribing to Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review to help other F1 fans find the show. You can also read the written report at f1strategyreport.com and stay up to date by finding us on Facebook and Twitter. My name's Michael Amanato. You can find me at Michael Amanato on Twitter. And I'll catch you in just a week's time for a wrap-up of the Italian Grand Prix. Thank you.